right. Good morning, friends. Glad to have you guys uh, in this auditorium and on the live stream because we're doing both this hour. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of opening up the Bible and unpacking what we see as we do that and uh, get to do that this morning as well and excited to do that. So uh, with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Psalm 128. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible in your possession, uh, you can actually go online to esv.org, uh, and that'll take you to a, a free digital version of the translation that we'll be tracking with this morning, word for word, uh, pretty easy to follow along with. Uh, let me go ahead, because we got a little bit of ground to cover, a few things to unpack this morning, and, uh, and pray for us, and we'll jump in and get after it this morning. Heavenly Father, we approach your th throne of grace as the author of Hebrews describes it, in desperate need of a, of a mighty work of your spirit. I ask that you would just, that you would overwhelm us with the beauty of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of your grace in him, that we might walk away different this morning, that we might walk away changed, transformed. We need you as we sing oftentimes in this space every hour, and that includes the one in which we find ourselves now. And so I ask that you would attend the preaching of your word in power now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so if you're, if you're joining us for the first time this morning or maybe have been in and out during this series and, and would like a little bit of a framework, I won't give a whole lot this morning, but, but we're essentially currently in the heart of a sermon series that's intended to carry us throughout the course of these fall months leading right up to uh, the season of Advent in a series entitled Songs of Ascent. We're, we're basically doing a walkthrough of a 15 song album within the book of Psalms, the hymn book of the Old Testament, an album that, as I've said throughout this series, the Israelites made their playlist as they traveled to Jerusalem several times a year for the major feasts and festivals. It's a playlist that matters today uh, as God invites us to cry out to him with the full range of human emotions as we see throughout the Psalms, the highest of highs oftentimes, the lowest of emotional lows and everything in between. This series, these 15 Psalms reminding us of who we are and where we're going, disciples of Jesus Christ on our way to the celestial city of, of God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Last week, if you were around, we, we focused in on one of the more unique tracks, Psalm 127, different from the many psalms of praise and prayer that we'd encountered up to that point in the series in simply offering us, Psalm 127, observations on, on how life works. And in that regard, it's, it's kind of a proverb of, of sorts, reminding us that, that the vast majority of our lives is spent in the workplace and the home, declaring that life in those spaces is absolutely and utterly meaningless without God. The psalmist, if you recall from last week, zooming in on three of the most universal things that human beings care about, building something with our lives, preserving that which we built ourselves for ourselves, and raising children without wrecking them. Those things that have the potential to worry our hearts most, showing us something of, of, of the, a life of anxiety without God, encouraging us to, to trust everything that we are and everything that we have to the Lord as we throw ourselves on his enabling and sustaining mercy, grace, and power. A reminder 
as I mentioned last week, that what we wake up to each day is a calling from God, not a calling to be God. That without God's blessing, every human endeavor is utterly meaningless, that all of our labors are in vain unless our reliance is upon the Lord rather than ourselves. In some sense, you could say Psalm 128 is something of a a part two as, as the psalmist picks up on those same topics that we looked at last week, the topics of work, the topic of, of family, taking Psalm 127's negative expression of anxious toil, of laboring in vain, and, and now, as we'll see this morning, communicating something of its positive expression of eating the fruit of the labor of one's hands, verse two. Taking Psalm 127, going back to last week, the blessing of children as a heritage from the Lord and and expanding that heritage now in Psalm 128 into a multi-generational legacy, verse six. That, That simply put, this Psalm gives us a picture of the blessed life in the context of ancient Israel, a faithful and flourishing family rooted in the Lord, gathered around the table together with the spread of good food and good drink because some things just don't change. As a, as a reminder, uh, this is a wisdom psalm. And wisdom literature in the Bible is descriptive, not predictive. Look no further than, than the book of Job to see that sometimes the righteous suffer. This psalm is, is not a declaration that those who fear the Lord will have everything go swimmingly in life for them. This psalm simply represents to us the, the normative pattern, you might say, of the way God designed the world to work. It's an announcement of blessing rooted in a right view of and right response to God. If you pick up in verse one of Psalm 128, the psalmist declares, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That that word bless or, or blessed shows up four times in this incredibly brief song, giving us a clue as to what the heartbeat of this psalm truly is. It's a song about true happiness and fulfillment. A song about positioning oneself under the waterfall of God's blessing. It's an invitation really to align ourselves with reality, the reality of the universe as we live in accordance with the way God designed us to flourish. And according to the psalmist, it all boils down to two things, reverence and obedience, fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. When the psalmist talks about the, the fear of the Lord, he, he doesn't have in view an angry curmudgeon in the sky just waiting to zap human beings with lightning bolts at any given moment or turn. He, he's simply talking about an encounter with God's holiness and majesty that changes us, an encounter with God that informs a life of obedience on the other side of that encounter. It, it's a deep sense of reverence and awe in relation to God as his covenant people. I've given this example a couple of times as we've talked about the fear of the Lord in various sermon series like the walk through Proverbs that we encountered a few years back. And the illustration is this. If you go to uh, one of my favorite uh, series, Chronicles of Narnia, no surprise to those of you who have been around for a while, the most famous of books in that series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have the Pevensey kids, Edmund, Lucy, Susan, and Peter, coming together in the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and being told, described as to what this Aslan, the main character, the Christ figure in the story is like, they begin to ask questions. Is he a man? And 
You know, of course, Mr. Beaver says, no, he's not a man. He, he's the king of the wood. He's the son of the, the great emperor beyond the sea. He's the king of beasts. He's a lion, the great lion. And Susan responds with, oh, I thought he was a man. I, I might be a little nervous about meeting a lion, as I think all of us probably would, right? And Mrs. Beaver says, well, yeah, that's how you should feel. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan with, without their knees knocking, uh, they're either incredibly brave or incredibly foolish and silly. And so Lucy, in one of the most famous lines, says, well, he isn't safe. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Dear, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Peter responds with this sort of both and that captures the beauty of the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ to use Jonathan Edwards' language. Peter says, I'm longing to see him even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That fear of the Lord comes when we see the Lord like Peter saw Aslan. I'm longing to see him. I've got to experience his nearness. Give me a, a ride on his back, grabbing hold of his big bushy mane, Yet, just entertaining the possibility fills me with a deep sense of reverence and humility because I'm a person of unclean lips, Isaiah 6, 5. And he's the king, the Lord of hosts. As Lewis says elsewhere in one of, uh, another of his famous works, Mere Christianity, he says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man, he says, is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. In other words, pride and, and true fear of the Lord cannot coexist because true fear of the Lord requires that we bow before his sovereign majesty. It's the heart of, of this rugged journey of Christian discipleship that we've been talking about for weeks now, the essence of, of which has been sadly lost in so many modern day expressions of the visible church. Right? Man's propensity is to fashion God in the image of his own making, which is much easier than having God conform us to his image establishing conclusions that, that accommodate our own lifestyles and motivations. The psalmist, in essence, he invites us, he exhorts us really to believe, to accept, and to live in the truth that God blesses those who fear him, which is a posture, as he goes on to say in verse one, that reveals itself in uh, its genuineness, I should say, in obedience, in walking in his ways. It's how the book of Job opens up, the very first line. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. It's the both end of verse one. According to the, the psalmist, fear of the Lord has an ethical outworking, inward reverence overflowing in, in outward devotion so that obedience, you might say, is something of a litmus test, a check engine light, revealing whether or not we truly fear the Lord. As the book of Proverbs says in a couple of different places, Proverbs chapter eight, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. There's the both and. 
Or Proverbs 14, two, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Again, the both and. That the blessing of Psalm 128, it's not for those who profess to fear the Lord, it's for those who truly fear him, who walk in his ways. It's the language of Psalm chapter one, verses one and two, as the book of Psalms opens up. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 112, verse one, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, there it is, who greatly delights in his commandments. There's the walking in his ways piece of it. Or Psalm 119, verses one through three, one of the more famous Psalms. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. There's the language of this morning's Psalm that contrary to popular belief, the psalmist declares that this view of and response to God is the secret to true happiness in life. That happiness is the outworking of reverence, fear of the Lord, and obedience, walking in his ways. Another illustration that I've given before, but it's been a while, so I think we can go back to it. One of my professors, systematic theology professors, Dr. Scott Swain, as he attempted to explain to us how the law works in scripture, you have three uses of the law. One, um, as you probably picked up on just through preaching in this church, one is to drive us to the cross, to say, you can't do it, uh, and to show us our deep need for the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second is simply to restrain evil, that without God's moral law, the world would be worse than it is, believe it or not. And, and And then third, The law is a guide for sanctification, a guide to true joy for the follower of Jesus Christ. And the way he made sense of that third use of the law, he said, you know, picture taking your kid to an ice cream shop and when you walk in, you you say to your child, at least if they're young enough to not know the rules of engagement, you you tell them things like, hey, don't, don't start at the bottom. If you do that, it's not gonna go well for you. That thing's gonna leak all over the floor and you're gonna miss out on a third of it. Or don't throw the ice cream cone. It's not a ball, it's not a toy. It's something to be eaten and enjoyed. You might tell them to lick the ice cream cone. You might tell them that uh, the the cone itself is edible and that they can sink their teeth into it. And, And when you say those things, you're throwing out commands, right? You're throwing out imperatives. Do this, don't do that. Don't throw it. Don't eat it from the bottom up. Do lick it, do eat the cone. It's just as good as the ice cream itself. And what you're doing as a parent when you do that is you're seeking to maximize your child's joy in the experience. That's what the moral law is in the Bible for Christ followers. That that according to the psalmist, we experience more intimacy with God and more joy in life as we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit in his commands. That when we choose to do otherwise, we, we actually, whether we believe it or not or see it or not, we're functioning as the greatest enemy of our own joy that we're going at life the hard way. I love how H.H. Farmer, the, the old British Presbyterian minister said it once. He said, if you, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. The grain of the universe, according to Psalm 128, is a life lived in reverence for and obedience to the Lord, to the triune God of the Bible. 
God having designed us to find our happiness in him as we bow before his sovereign majesty and walk in his ways, that that's the true way of peace and prosperity. Unlike the one who labors, going back to Psalm 127, in the vanity of self-reliance. The, the psalmist goes on to describe something of the blessing in verses two and three, as he says, you shall eat the fruit of the labors of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Right, Genesis three, many of us know this, tells the story of, of the world having come unraveled, the, the curse associated with man's rebellion pronounced upon fallen humanity and creation. God declared a, a world filled with thorns and thistles. He declared conflict between husband and wife, multiplied pain and childbearing. That's the language of Genesis three. Here, you have the language of blessing in the midst of that curse. Man bringing forth food from the earth and wine to gladden his heart, to use the language of Psalm 104. You have the language of a flourishing marriage, the, the vine in scripture, symbolic not only of fruitfulness, but also merriment and allure. This is a happy marriage. This is a faithful marriage, as this is a fruitful vine within, verse three, the blessed man's house. You have the language of a growing, flourishing family with children described as olive shoots, complementing that strong imagery of arrows in the previous psalm communicating not only something of a plant life growth and, and vibrancy, a healthy stability and longevity in contrast to the blade of grass that withers, but also denoting a multitude like a quiver of arrows, all gathered around the table surrounding the blessed man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. It's a declaration that the blessing isn't just for him, that it extends beyond him to those in closest, intimate, relational proximity to him. That he doesn't eat the bread of, of anxious toil in the lonely effort to self-reliantly build and preserve, Psalm 127, but rather he enjoys a seat at the table surrounded by the blessing of a family. It's an imagery, imagery that, that surely has its place, right? As we consider the blessing of what it means to be a part of God's forever family, the church, that as we grow in reverence for and obedience to the Lord, verse one, that those around us become fruitful vines and, and olive shoots around our table. That's, that's the imagery and language of discipleship, right? It's also a foreshadowing of the, the great marriage supper of the lamb to come, Revelation 19, as we're someday seated together, you and I, at, at the internal table of the all-satisfying triune God. The psalmist goes on to say in verses four through six, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Verse four sounds a lot like verse one in language, except that the psalmist here in verse four incorporates a different Hebrew word translated blessed. In verse one, it's a word meaning happy as he focuses in the psalmist on the state of the, the recipient of the blessing, the one who fears the Lord. Here in verse four, it's a verb that means to bless. 
The psalmist now focusing in on the one who gives the blessing, God himself, the one who bestows grace. So that the, the blessing that was announced and described in the first four verses, the first part of the psalm, that blessing is now pronounced as a benediction, similar to what we do at the end of our services. Many scholars believing that, that these words were pronounced by the priest himself as the pilgrim people of Israel came together in the temple that what God's people were called to believe in the first part of the psalm, they're now called to receive. For the Israelites, blessing was linked to the flourishing of Jerusalem, the city herself, along with this unbreakable chain of continuing generations. In other words, blessing was linked to God's people and God's place. And the same is true for us today. As citizens of the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem in Jesus Christ. That we've, we've seen this kind of language, the second half of this morning Psalm before in the lyrics of Psalm 121. Psalm 121 verses seven and eight. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. As I mentioned when we, when we studied that particular psalm, many scholars argue that that, that kind of use of, of language, it drives at the idea that, that the journey to Jerusalem is a parable for life, capturing the fullness of the human experience, declaring that, that nothing in a believer's life is beyond the keeping, preserving hand of God. It's a declaration that, that our God is a God who sustains and preserves his people as they journey down this rugged road of discipleship that finds its destination in him that his blessing is not just for his people in the feasts and festivals, in the assembly like this, but all the days of your life, verse five, down to your children's children, verse six, from Zion to the ends of the earth, verse five. In other words, it's a, it's a blessing that has its reaches beyond one person, as I said earlier, beyond one place, beyond one moment in time, I love the way that the Gospel Transformation Bible says it. It says, one man holds the umbrella faithfully and by God's grace, countless others are protected under the cover it provides. Of course, we, we know that there's only one man who held that umbrella with perfect sinless faithfulness and his name is Jesus Christ. That by God's grace, you and I are protected under the cover that his blood provides, the fullness of God's blessing, ours in him. That's something we come together to celebrate this morning, right? That if you're not a Christian, the invitation is that you would put your trust in him, that you would proclaim him savior and king, King Jesus, the greater Aslan, that he's the only hope for lost sinners to have a seat at this table that you get the imagery of in Psalm 128, He's our only hope for knowing the fullest expression of the blessing of this morning psalm. A forever family seated together at the eternal table of the all-satisfying God. So that in some sense, Psalm 128 is an argument that Christianity is not just a get out of hell free card. It's not just about avoiding the vanity and futility of Psalm 127, but rather about finding true and ultimate and lasting joy in God, who we were designed to find our greatest joy in. And if you are a Christian, I mean, this psalm brings to, to view things that are fairly ordinary, right? 
things that we can so easily take for granted. We're all gonna leave this place and at some point within a couple hours, probably gonna eat again. Psalmist declares those moments to be treasures. This moment to be a treasure as we're gathered around the table, proverbially speaking, to worship him as the church. These moments to be richly enjoyed to the glory of God, a God worthy of our reverence, a God worthy of our obedience, verse one. That, that how we view the Lord matters, how we respond to the Lord matters. As Alec Motyer in his commentary on this morning's psalm says, he says, the psalm is worded in terms of a man who is deeply reverent towards God and obedient to his word. Such a man has discovered the key to personal contentment. Blessedness flows from such a man out into his marriage and family, into his church, and on into the Israel of God. The truth, of course, he says, is not confined just to the man the psalm describes. It is true for every individual in Christ. It matters, he says, whether I keep my daily tryst with the Lord. It matters whether I soak myself in his word and base my lifestyle on what he has revealed. It matters for my immediate loved ones, for the wider circle of my Jerusalem, and for Israel, the worldwide company of those who believe in Jesus. It matters. That as I said before, Psalm 128 is an invitation to align ourselves with reality as we live in accordance with the way God designed us to truly flourish as his image bearers. That you and I, we're invited to participate in the work of, of God who blesses those who fear him and walk in his ways. Of course, as an outworking of his grace in Christ, make no mistake about it, and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And here's the, perhaps the most encouraging news of all. We get to do that, verse one, fear the Lord and walk in his ways, knowing that the high priest of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, is speaking his blessing over us as we speak, his benediction, that you and I might experience and enjoy all of the benefits that are ours in him. As we continue to, to worship this morning, I just invite you to, to picture that, to picture Jesus seated at the right hand of, of the Father, the majesty on high, as your high priest and advocate, speaking a benediction of blessing over you that you might experience the fullness of the blessing that is for those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. And that you, you might find yourself in a posture of reverence before King Jesus, our high priest, longing to be near him like Peter before Aslan, yet feeling a deep sense of reverence and majesty at the thought. We get to worship this God together in a couple of ways in these moments to come through our song, invite you to sing to this God who's worthy of our song as we declare his majesty together with our collective voices. There will also be an opportunity to receive of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We, we take the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are cups on the back table. If you didn't grab one on the way in, you're welcome to go get one at some point between the now and the end of the service. We've got two more songs and during that time at any point, you're welcome to partake of communion from your seat. I just invite you before you do to, to stop and to consider the finished work of Jesus. He is the truly blessed man of Psalm 128 who because of his faithfulness, we all are invited to a seat at the table because of his broken body and shed blood.